Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, welcome back to week seven on bladder dysfunction, and we're starting with an international urogyne and ICS joint report on terminology for female pelvic floor dysfunction. This was authored by Bernard Halen, Dirk DeRitter, Robert Freeman, Stephen Swift, Barry Bergmans, Joseph Lee, Ashmanga, Eckhard Petri, Dia Rizik, Peter Sand, and Gabriel Scher. And then before we get started with all the fun stuff, I have a really quick shameless plug for my MedBridge affiliate link. It is PRRP. It saves you $150 off your annual MedBridge subscription. I started this podcast because I am not a reading the book type of learner. I do a lot better with podcasts, with um, virtual courses, things like that. I use MedBridge for their osteoporosis, lymphedema, oncology, some male pelvic health, just because, um, as well as the orthopedic courses that they have for SIJ, lumbar spine. Um, I could really go on for how many courses that I took. I am super lame. So of course I did all of these on the weekends or within my breaks for lunch because I was super nervous about passing. So I did all my coursework and then I continued with some of these courses. So if you were thinking about getting a MedBridge subscription or you always get one every year, I would love it if you use my code. It's PRRP for Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. It helps me keep this podcast free to low cost for you and everybody else. Plus it's your favorite podcast. So why not? Okay, moving on back to the fun stuff. So this report, um, it's actually an abstract and there is a paywall, but to be honest, it's not going to be that short and sweet because the abstract includes a lot of notes. The authors note that due to its increasing complexity for terminology for the pelvic floor in women, it's going to be better updated by female specific approaches and clinically based consensus reports. So this report combines the input of two really big members of the standardization and terminology committees and two international organizations that you've probably heard of, one being the International Urogyne Association and the second being the International Continent Society, that ICS. So then an extensive process of 15 rounds of internal and external review was done by exhaustively examining each definition with decision-making by collective opinion or consensus. And then some of the results that we won't get to see are going to include things like the full terminology report for female pelvic floor dysfunction, which encompasses over 250 separate definitions. It's clinically based with the six most common diagnoses defined. And then ongoing review is not only anticipated, but it's going to be required in order to keep this document updated and widely acceptable as possible. So if you're like me and you've looked it up already, there have been multiple updated reviews. So of course, the majority of these are unfortunately behind paywalls as well. So let's get into some of the notes that encompasses some of the agreed definitions and the accepted terminology. Firstly, just a heads up, this is going to seem pretty choppy and random. It's simply the notes of the main article and it's in bits and pieces. That being said, this is what I use for my own studying and I still found it very helpful, but I realize it's different for everyone. So here are some of the abstract notes and some of my asides for further detail. So continence is defined as voluntary control of bladder and bowel function. 
urgency replaces urge as the accepted terminology for abnormal rather than the normal phenomenon. And then as of 2010, authors found that this is a common symptom, the mechanism of which has not been adequately researched, and it's uncertain whether it should be linked to stress urinary incontinence or urinary urgency incontinence. Traditionally, seven episodes of micturation during waking hours has been deemed as the upper limit of normal, though it may be higher in some populations. And then as we know, it's pretty common to void during the nighttime when sleep is disturbed for other reasons like insomnia, lactation, and that doesn't constitute nocturia. But just as a side note, always assess those patients to see if they have sleep apnea for those repeat waking to urinate episodes that don't seem to make sense. The use of the word sudden, defined as without warning or abrupt, used in earlier definitions has been subject to a lot of debate. Its inclusion has been continued and then a grading of urgency is still being developed. Dyspronia, the symptom most applicable for female pelvic floor dysfunction, will depend on many factors including a female's introidal relaxation and or their pain tolerance and her partner's hesitancy or insistence. Other symptoms of female sexual dysfunction include 1. Decreased sexual desire, 2. Decreased sexual arousal, 3. Decreased orgasm, and 4. Being abstinent. And they are less specific for pelvic floor female dysfunction and are not going to be defined here. The Pelvic Organ Prolapse and Urinary Incontinence Sexual Questionnaire PISQ, if you're more familiar with shortened abbreviations, is a measure of sexual function in women with urinary incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse. Symptoms of defecatory dysfunction are commonly associated with pelvic organ prolapse, specifically that posterior vaginal prolapse. And then that Rome 2 criteria for constipation, these are going to include things such as a complaint that bowel movements are infrequent, like three times or less per week, that there's a need to strain, there's lumpy or hard stool bloating, there's a sensation of incomplete evacuation, there's a sensation of anorectal obstruction or blockage for abdominal pain, and then lastly that there's a need for manual assistance in more than one quarter of all defecations. The definitions of pelvic pain and especially chronic pelvic pain are being debated in several societies with a view for simplification and general restructuring of the classification. The chronic, being present for at least three months, pain syndromes have not been included until a consensus is reached. And then moving on, commonly suggested criteria for one bacteria, which is bacteria in the urine, is more than 100,000 CFU per milliliters on avoided specimen, or more than 1,000 CFU per milliliter on a catheterized specimen. And then two, pyuria are more than 10 white blood cells per milliliter. And aside again from me, bacteria is the asymptomatic presence of bacteria in the urine. This is common in elderly females and traditionally introduced due to poor bowel hygiene. Most of the bacteria is going to be E. coli. And then for pyuria, that's a condition where pus is present in the urine. UTIs are the most common cause of pyuria, but there are other causes such as STIs, viral infections, and chronic use of some medications, the most common symptom for pyuria is cloudy, foul-smelling urine. And then back to the author's notes here, recurrent UTIs haven't been consistently defined. There's kind of a difficulty in balancing the practical clinical definition and then the more scientific one, so records of diagnostic tests are often inaccessible over the medium to longer term. So just 
an implication is that three or more UTIs in the previous 12 months are going to be considered recurrent UTIs. And then moving on, stress incontinence on prolapse reduction is a sign frequently alluded to but not properly defined to date. So the means of reducing the prolapse is going to vary. A pessary or a ring might obstruct the urethra, giving a false negative for this sign. The ICS POP quantification system, which describes the topographic position of six vaginal sites, is the subject of review right now by the IUGA, Standardization and Terminology Committee, with a view for simplification. So the sites and the methodology behind the measurement format have not been included here. And then as of this report, consensus was not reached on inserting evaluation of the different prolapse stages into the report that will be subject to ongoing discussion. So like considering zero or one as different degrees of normal support, and then considering stage two or more where the leading edge is at or beyond the hymen as definite prolapse. In general, we know that most gynecologists are comfortable with the terms cystocele, rectocele, vaginal vault prolapse, and enterocele. Coupled with the brevity of these terms and their clinical use for over 200 years, the inclusion of these terms is pretty appropriate. Some regard it as important to surgically strategize the difference between a central cystocele, that central defect with the loss of rugae due to the stretching of that subvesical connective tissue and the vaginal wall, and then a paravaginal defect where the rugae is still preserved due to a detachment from the arcus tendinous fascia pelvis. One of those celebrity ligaments, if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so the correlation between... Okay, so then moving on. I know it's very choppy. The correlation between the maximum urethral close pressure and the abdominal leak pressure point may depend on the catheter type used. So as an aside for me, this is in relation to urodynamic studies. The goal of assessing these two different measures being to study the effect of urethral function on the upper urinary tract function in relation to the urinary incontinence. Maximum urethral close pressure is another measure of urethral function in stress incontinence. So maximum urethral close pressure is the maximum difference between the urethral pressure and the intravesical pressure. And then this is going to be found during urodynamic testing. Then there is the abdominal LPP, which is a dynamic test. It's the lowest value of the intentionally increased intravesical pressure that provokes urinary leakage in the absence of a detrusor contraction. So that pressure increase can be induced by cough, valsalva, etc. So in symptomatic women with a normal detrusor function, they don't have to rely as much on an increase in detrusor pressure to achieve successful voiding like men. With a shorter urethra, that three to four centimeters that we have versus that 20 centimeters that men have, urethral relaxation should suffice. The concept of urethral relaxation prior to detrusor contraction is a change from prior definitions before. And then in symptomatic women, detrusor voiding pressure, urine flow rate, and post-void residual are important markers of bladder outflow obstruction. So in the original definition, only detrusor pressure and urine flow used to be included. In scientific studies, consideration should be given to standardization of the valsalva strength, so like by using an intrarectal pressure transducer, and then the use of transvaginal ultrasound as well with an empty bladder optimizes that assessment. The most common diagnoses are those where there is evidence for a prevalence of 10% or more in women presenting with symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. 
So SUI is going to be the most common urogynecological diagnosis occurring in up to 72% of patients presenting for the first time. This diagnosis may be made in the absence of the symptom of stress urinary incontinence in women who have the sign of occult or latent stress incontinence. And occult urinary incontinence is urinary incontinence only when a woman's prolapse is reduced. The prevalence of detrusor overactivity can vary widely between 13% and 40% of patients undergoing urodynamic studies at different centers. So that's a big difference. The prevalence of the oversensitive bladder in urogynecology and female urology patients from studies on the now obsolete term sensory urgency is around 10 to 13%. Depending on definition, voiding dysfunction has a prevalence of 14% to 39%, the latter figure making it either the third or the fourth most common urodynamic diagnosis after urodynamic stress incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and possibly that detrusor overactivity. Approximately 2% of post-void residual measurements are over 200 milliliters, and that 200 milliliters is the suggested cutoff. Around 61% of women who are presenting for initial urogynecological assessment will have had some type of prolapse, some type of degree. It's not always symptomatic though, as we know. Objective findings of prolapse in the absence of relevant prolapse symptoms can be termed anatomic prolapse. Approximately half of all women over the age of 50 years old have been reported to complain of symptomatic prolapse. So there's a 10% lifetime incidence for women undergoing surgery to correct pelvic organ prolapse. Okay, so that's the end of their notes. There is an editorial comment from this article that's encouraging medical providers to adopt and review these updates in order to provide best practice for women. 2010 was the first time they had completed an extensive and exhaustive effort in terminology definitions, and then it was followed up by a 2018 update, which is also behind a paywall. The unfortunate piece is I can't go into the full text, but the positive is that their notes were kind of extensive for just an abstract option. So let's get to the take-home points. I think that these are really important, and um, if you're going to re-listen to this because you're thinking, what the heck was that whole article on? I'd probably just re-listen to my take-home points. So anyways, number one, Rome 2 criteria for constipation. Complaint that bowel movements are infrequent, less than three times a week. There's a need to strain. There's lumpy or hard stool bloating. There's a sensation of incomplete evacuation. There's a sensation of anorectal obstruction or blockage in abdominal pain. And then lastly, there's a need for that manual assistance in more than one quarter of all defecations. Because bowel habits are so individualized and varying, I really think it's important to know and understand this criteria in order to best refer out to GI specialists, PCP, and just know what you're talking about. And then the definitions of pelvic pain, especially that chronic pelvic pain, are being debated in several societies with a view for simplification and restructuring that classification. I don't know about you, but we see pelvic pain patients a lot, and having to find terminology in order to pretty much research and provide interventions, I believe, is going to be a huge factor. So there's so many difficulties in conducting research to provide better evidence-based care if there isn't a universal definition. So that's just an aside that I think is kind of pivotal in our treatment right now. 
So then number three, symptomatic women with normal detrusor function do not have to rely as much on an increase in detrusor pressure to achieve successful voiding as men. Because we have that anatomical shorter urethra, three to four centimeters versus 20 centimeters, urethral relaxation might just suffice. But remember that that concept that they mentioned of urethral relaxation prior to detrusor contraction is a change that they've had from prior definitions. I just wanted to re-highlight that because I find that the urethral and the detrusor relationship is a really important thing to note as clinicians and as specialists. And then four, and finally just to note that approximately 2% of post-void residual measurements are over that 200 milliliter suggested cutoff. Understanding urodynamics as a specialist, I, I think is important. Knowing normal values is an important piece of that, even if it's just written down in your drawer. I could probably re-highlight all of their notes as take-home points, but I just wanted to highlight some changes that I thought were really important. Feel free to re-listen to the notes of the abstracts if some pieces were new to you, and if you want some repetition. That being said, that's all I have for you on the ICS and the International Eurogyne Association Joint Report. So besides wishing that I physically could attend the Rome 4 Project in Rome for their meetings and their courses, I just wanted to note that they do have virtual courses that we can attend as students or trainees, but they are for a fee. There's also likely no CEU benefit for us. Um, They kind of tailor it towards the MDs, PhDs, PAs, and NPs. Last I looked, though, there were some good pieces regarding gastropsych and pediatrics. So anyways, I hope this was helpful. I look forward to having you all join me for the next article, and that's going to be on the evaluation of female pelvic floor muscle function and strength by Bo in 2005. Thanks, pelvic people. Mm-hmm.